Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to a very special interview with Daniel Ellsberg. Many of you know Daniel as the Pentagon Papers whistleblower, and that's what he's mostly known for. But through this interview, you're going to get to know Daniel Ellsberg not as the Pentagon Papers whistleblower, but as someone who was a nuclear war planner for the United States government. Um, as, as it says in his book, in 1961, he was a consultant to the Defense Department and the White House. He helped Defense Secretary Robert McNamara draft plans for nuclear war. These are files that, in fact, he kept. He, he took many of these files, much like he took the Pentagon Papers and uh, copied them with a Xerox machine and then uh, got those out to uh, several media organizations. He had a box. He had, he had many of these files on nuclear war planning that he wanted to eventually release, where he held off and, and waited. And we talk about in the interview what happened uh, tragically to these files and why he is not able to uh, be, the, be someone who can expose those documents today. However, despite the loss of these documents, he does write that 45 years have gone by, and uh, although most of what he took has remained secret. Uh, the The Freedom Information Act has unable has been something that uh, Americans have not been able to use to pry out a lot of this information to gain additional insight into uh, the the use of nuclear weapons and the plans that the U.S. military and government might have for first strikes or preemptive strikes and for for using them. And so uh, he is. Um, taking advantage of the era that we live in to post many of his notes, his memos, and some of the documents he still has um, on a, a website so that uh, Americans can, can dig into this very important issue of how close uh, we might be to a doomsday because uh, we have uh, a nuclear weapons capabilities and also, we have to be mindful of other countries that have nuclear weapons, uh, like Russia or China, and and the sort of tensions that are ongoing in this current world. Uh, and I know that this is something that Dan has uh, spent a lot of his time. Um, he's been working to complete this for many years. Back in 2013, I had the the pleasure of going to his house to interview him, and he took me and showed me some of the boxes, the files. And, and introduced me to some of the work that he was doing on this project. So I know it's a book that's been in the works. And uh, our paths uh, intersected at the Chelsea Manning uh, pretrial hearing in 2011. And uh, ever since then, um, we've loosely known and followed what Dan's been doing and uh, appreciate the uh, work that he continues to do even as somebody in his late 80s, to help keep us informed and to continue to share his wisdom and insights about the nature of U.S. government. So uh, with that, please, uh, I hope you appreciate this interview. It's about 40 minutes, 
and uh, there will be a transcript of this interview posted at shadowproof.com. So if you want to quote from it, uh, share it, uh, use it to uh, get people interested in more of what Dan has to say in this interview, um, I encourage you to go to shadowproof.com. You'll find the transcript. That said, here's Unauthorized Disclosures interview with Daniel Ellsberg. My first question that I have for you, Dan, is, uh, you know, it's it's quite news to me and, and it's news to everyone who appreciates what you did uh, in exposing the Pentagon Papers that you had uh, documents on uh, nuclear weapons and nuclear matters with the U.S. government and, in fact, um, had uh, contemplated uh, releasing these documents at the same time that uh, Richard Nixon was uh, trying to pursue and destroy you. Uh, and I wanted you to talk about that uh, before we got going in the interview. Okay, well, we... I didn't speak, of course, of those documents at the very time that the papers were in the fight with the Supreme Court or right after about the Pentagon Papers because I uh, wanted to focus attention at that time on the bombing that was happening, which continued right throughout my trial in uh, 73, finally cut off in mid-73, thanks to Watergate largely. But uh, that was the war that I wanted to interfere with at that point, even though I thought the nuclear material is fundamentally more significant. And <clears throat> that was... That plan uh, was derailed when the documents that I copied on the nuclear affairs were lost because of a hurricane that scattered the trash dump in which my brother had uh, buried the documents. So to my great disappointment, I had to give up uh, by the end of the war, or even a little before that, the prospect of putting out these other documents. And without the documents, it really uh, made it impossible to publish. Uh, publishers didn't think that the subject itself was of sufficient interest. And I don't know if it would have made all the difference or what, what the effect would have been if I'd released them earlier at that point. Uh, I must say they're getting a lot of attention now, as much as I could hope for, for a book on this subject. But I think that's largely due to Donald J. Trump who has worried people that he might actually put these plans into practice. So let me call attention to what I think is perhaps the most stunning uh, part of uh, your work here. Um, it, it comes when you're talking about the chart, um, the estimate that was put before you in the spring of 1961. Um, you, you were asking uh, about um, what would happen, how many people would be killed in the Soviet Union Union and China um, if these weapons were deployed, uh, if we committed an attack. Um, and, uh, you know, the figure that you got back, I want you to talk about that figure um, and, and what it was like to be presented with such a, a staggering figure uh, when you were doing this work. The... First question that I asked the Joint Chiefs, that is, I, I drafted a question that was sent to the Joint Chiefs by the President, was 
if your plans were carried out as planned, in other words, with the targets you planned and they weren't disrupted in some way by Soviet preemption or hurricane or whatever, uh, how many people would die in the USSR and China? And I asked that in that limited way, not asking for total casualties at first, because uh, I thought they really didn't have an answer. And that would be the most embarrassing one for them to admit, really, that they didn't have an answer even to how many people we would kill in Russia or the USSR or China. I was wrong about that. The chart in my book, which I reproduced from memory, a very simple chart, I'm sure I have it right, indicated that they expected to kill with our own first strike some 325 million people in the USSR and China. And since they had an answer to that uh, so quickly, they clearly had a model to go on. And I asked for how many would be killed altogether. And that figure added up to 600 million, uh, 100 holocausts as I saw it. So with that frame in mind, it was an appalling, shocking figure that they would actually give to the president of the United States without hesitation, without any apology, without any anguishing. This is the result of what we would do, 100 holocausts. And um, it, it gave me a new perspective on our military, but actually I felt more broadly on the human species because it, it, I've never any reason to suspect that our military planners were more monstrous, or more callous, than others, really. And I expected the same was pretty much true in Russia, but also other states as well. So um, what does it mean for a species for that is prepared to consider inflicting casualties on that level to um, so far beyond the wars of the last 2,000 years, despite the monstrosities that occur even in those wars, and this enormously uh, overpass them with current technology. That figure actually is shocking. I'm glad to hear you say, uh, but in particular because I don't think you've ever seen another official figure on what the casualties of our war plans would be. In fact, it occurred to me after that was published that probably the government would regard that very chart as uh, still classified because they really never have put out, there have been speculations as to how devastating a war would be. But, uh, and this of course is not an official release. It's it's a uh, release by the best memory and conference of a former official, me. At that time I was a consultant. Later I was a, a high civil servant in the Defense Department and the State Department. But uh, although I think, for example, Herb York has talked of hundreds of millions, which gives the same notion, there's simply been no official release of this. And I'm sure that at this time, uh, any estimates of the casualties from our, or deaths from our larger, quote, options that would hit lots of cities in this Soviet Union or now Russia would be much the same. Final thing is that at that time when I saw that, it was still 20 years away from scientists having revealed, calculated that 
the smoke from burning cities would in fact reach into the stratosphere, stay there because it wouldn't be rained out in the stratosphere, move around the globe and uh, reduce sunlight by as much as 70%, lowering temperatures on the Earth's surface to those of a previous ice age and killing the harvests, which would, and, and much of the vegetation, which would lead to the starvation of most humans far beyond 600 million uh, that would that would have been in in 61 uh, a fifth of the earth's population no it would be more like five fifths very close to it at that very time and the same would be true now that we have 7.4 billion it would be over 7 billion uh, from a large nuclear war between the US and Russia now, at the time, um, as, you, as you're going through this work, uh, what were you able to discover or learn as to whether any officials were concerned that these estimates could leave um, hundreds of millions of people dead? Uh, and, and did it change or shift as time progressed with the U.S. government? I think that uh, President Kennedy, and I know Secretary of Defense McNamara from talking to him directly, were indeed appalled by these uh, these kinds of results. And Secretary McNamara in particular, with uh, on the basis of guidance for the Joint Chiefs that I drafted myself at that time, wanted to move targeting away from, to allow at least, uh, targeting to move away from cities not and not to include China automatically. It would seem a fairly self-evident change because at that time, the only plans for hitting or rather attacking uh, in a war with Russia involved hitting China at the same time, whether they'd been involved in the initiation of the war at all. And in theory, then, uh, there were options that withheld attack on China. And... Uh, withheld attacks on Moscow, uh, which was tremendous heresy in the Pentagon not to hit Moscow in the first attacks, except that uh, that would very clearly have made the war both unendable with no one like the Japanese emperor at the end of World War II to call for surrender or for ceasefire, uh, no way really to stop, stop the war, and uh, no way to limit it in any way. But all of these things uh, were put in as possibilities, uh, new new choices for a president to make. But as time went on, it appeared that the Air Force paid almost no attention in Strategic Air Command uh, to such changes. I think they may have paid lip service to the possibility of it. But as General Lee Butler reported later, who was the last commander of Strategic Air Command, the first commander of the Unified strategic command that included the naval strategic forces. He reported later that it was just in his memoirs that uh, the planners and the operators really couldn't take seriously the idea that couldn't imagine even that the president would fail to hit Moscow, fail to hit the targets in cities, and for that matter, fail to launch on warning, uh, which the Air Force has always, and the, and the strategic forces have always claimed, is at most an option or a hypothesis, but not something they counted on. 
the reality has been really that uh, the operators have always assumed that on the receipt of warning that an attack was imminent or on the way, we would not wait for enemy warheads to explode amidst our missiles, reducing them, but would get our missiles in the air and on the way to target. Uh, so none of the changes that I made as uh, or suggested in the planning actually had any effect as far as I know on the way that a war would actually have been conducted. And later researchers on this, or people who participated in it, like General Butler, or various others, uh, none of them actually went into effect as far as I can see. Each, every administration, people would notice that the current plan seemed insane, you know, and insanely destructive, uh, leading virtually to extinction. Well, we've known that since the nuclear winter findings in uh, 1983. That was late in the game, almost 40 years into the nuclear era, and we discovered what smoke from burning cities would actually do. But uh, that was still 35 years ago, and as far as anybody knows, and it's been reported, there's been no real reflection of that in the planning. We continue to threaten and prepare for attacks between the two nuclear superpowers that would lead to near extinction. And another rather stunning section for me is is what you choose to um, mostly open your book with, and you have an introduction, but the first aspect of our nuclear plans that you delve into is how there was no officially authorized way for the president or the Joint Chiefs of Staff or anyone else to stop planes that received an execute order to deploy nuclear weapons. Uh, you address um, your journey in finding out that this was the reality. Yeah, that was another part of just what later came out as Dr. Strangelove, the movie in 1964, was basically a documentary. It showed what actually could happen in that movie a rogue general sends off planes and the president has no way to call them back. Actually, in the movie, they couldn't live with that entirely. They finally figure out that there was a coded way, if only they could discover the code, to get them. In reality, um, there was no such uh, callback or stop order. Once the planes and the later missiles were on their way, even though in the case of the planes, it might take many hours to get to Russia. Nothing that happened in the in between their takeoff and their uh, dropping their weapons could actually change uh, their their operations. There was no way to tell them that either that the enemy had surrendered or that there had been a terrible mistake at the beginning that had led to their launch and the false alarm or a change of mind by the president. I think, by the way, that this latter possibility was the nightmare of the military planners, that a civilian president uh, could, in the midst of these hours of planes uh, traveling toward burning cities in the Soviet Union, might change his mind, or someday her mind, and uh, 
move them, uh, bring them back or try to bargain with the other side. And that was something they didn't think was either feasible or desirable. So they didn't build in any kind of stop order. And I'm not uh, aware that that's really ever changed. In fact, uh, it might have. And indeed, a lot of aspects of the system uh, are so secret that they really play no part in deterring, for example, the other side. I thought you were going to uh, uh, mention, and perhaps you were about to mention, that uh, another aspect of the book is my discovery that the president had delegated authority to use, to send weapons, to initiate nuclear war, to not only the high-level commanders, theater commanders, but knew that they had in turn delegated that to lower commanders down to even fairly low levels, all for pretty much the same reason that uh, they didn't want an enemy, specifically the Soviets, in those days to paralyze any for us to retaliate by hitting our command and control system or our, uh, or Washington in particular, our command centers like Offutt Field, uh, Strategic Air Command in Nebraska. And that's a pretty a pretty powerful reason, but paradoxically, although you would think you would want the Soviets to know that that they couldn't paralyze our ability, that was a great secret, I think, as far as I know, lest the American public be alarmed by it, by the fact that this was delegated, therefore. And so, as far as is known, uh, the Soviets were never made aware, really that they couldn't, quote, decapitate uh, our system effectively. And uh, we gave up that, that aspect of deterrence. Well, by the same token, when the Soviets did the same thing for the same reason, uh, by responding to talk of decapitation of Moscow in the Carter administration and then later in the Reagan administration, they instituted what they called a dead hand system that assured that if Moscow were destroyed, uh, there would be authorization at lower levels to retaliate. And that was their biggest secret. They didn't tell us that. So that we continued with plans for decapitation and not knowing, or at least not reflecting the fact that they would have no effect in sparing us from uh, the enemy retaliation. I'm pretty sure the same thing applies in North Korea right now. With all the attention we give publicly in reports and releases, that uh, Kim Jong-un is subject to plans of ours for decapitation or assassination in various ways by drones or cruise missiles or special forces or uh, any kind of attack. I'm pretty sure that they've responded the same way the Russian planners did and American planners did by assuring that if he's killed and his regime is, is destroyed, there will be retaliation. And probably not only against South Korea and Japan, but they probably have figured out ways to inflict casualties in the U.S. They don't need an ICBM for that. They only need a boat to bring warheads over here to ports like San Francisco or Los Angeles. And uh, Rand did a report on the effect of such an attack 12 years ago in 2006 when the Koreans first, North Koreans first tested a nuclear weapon. That was a dozen years ago. Has President Trump been informed that uh, he may lose a city or two in this country? I don't know, actually. I'm pretty sure, though, that his military people do know that. 
but you wouldn't uh, know it from hearing the talk about how an attack on North Korea might be kept limited. I think the chance of a limited war with North Korea is approaches zero. Now, uh, what I uh, what really resonated with me in your book is how influential uh, Stanley Kubrick's film was on you. And, and I want to give you a chance to just address this point that at the moment when this film plays in theaters and the public gets to watch this unfold, satire as it may be, there's really no discussion out in the open politically about nuclear weapons and what their impact were. So as I understand it, you being able to go in and watch this film, it was like seeing things that you were dealing with in the top secret level uh, brought out into the open for the public to confront. Is that right? Well, yes and no. Uh, it was obvious that that was being presented as a satire, even a comedy. It is very funny, actually. Uh, and so a lot of people, even the whole book has been written on the theme that, well, this shows that you can't really have a nuclear war because it had to have all these coincidences of sending off missiles and planes with no stop order. That couldn't really happen after all, or having a doomsday machine that you didn't tell the enemy about. Uh, uh, that's really, you know, impossible. Actually, that's exactly was the reality. And, uh, but the trouble was, as I say that I don't think many people really uh, thought that uh, it could be as realistic as it actually was. So uh, it is worth seeing that movie, but I don't think it's ever really evoked the kind of determination to change the system. Uh, it's thought of as, well, you know, that's uh, an imaginary, an imaginary kind of thing. The, um, what's the difference is you know, uh, that I would hope that my book will at least encourage people to ask the question in Congress, or what is the exact situation today? Is it possible? You know, what is the situation on delegation, for example? How many fingers are really on the button? There's all this concern. There is no actual button. It's done by phone, basically, uh, or nowadays computers, it would be. Uh, but um, uh, how many people can actually, with authorization under various circumstances, launch those weapons. It is more than the president. And we're, people are worrying about Trump under the impression that the mood of Trump alone is at issue here because he's the only one who can do this. That's not the case. You have to worry about uh, other people around the world who have that ability and not only Americans. How many fingers are really on the buttons, for example, of Indian Pakistani weapons? as well as Russian, as I've always said. They have a dead hand system, we know. But um, the problem right now, of course, is that asking those questions of a Republican Congress is um, will get no feedback. <laughs> it's into a black hole, sort of nothing, nothing will come out of that. Um, I do hope that there will be a discussion raised here that will go on to uh, a period when we have at least one House of Congress in Democratic hands that would be open to investigating this. And I have to say that Democrats in the past have shown no inclination to do that either. So it's a slender hope, but that's 
since there is so much at stake, that's what I have to live with, that degree of hope that there will be investigation of this in this country and others. Uh, it's conceivable. Well, not so much so. In Russia, I was saying now they have uh, a legislature that it's not purely rubber stamp, but uh, it's not that it is pretty much rubber stamp too. So uh, the hope for this real change in the system is small, but it's not zero. And that's enough to keep me working at it. As you uh, seem to uh, insinuate earlier, and as is, I feel one of the most uh, critical aspects of your book is its relevance to the current moment. Uh, unfortunately, um, you know, you wouldn't like to write a book and think that, you know, what you detail 60 or 70 years ago is still exceptionally relevant, uh, especially given the subject matter. But we've had um, the, the nuclear posture review released um, that the Trump administration is thinking of uh, incorporating or will likely incorporate because they'll do what the generals want. Um, and and I, I want you to address uh, something you detail in your book, which is the idea that we don't use nuclear weapons, the myth that we don't use nuclear weapons. You talk about how, um, in great detail, um, most presidential administrations in the last decades have used nuclear weapons because they threatened to use them. That's right. The, we use them repeatedly, several dozen times in crises, not all of which were known to be crises in the minds of the public. Use them in the way that you use a gun when you point it at somebody in a confrontation, whether you pull the trigger or not. You've used the weapon, and if you can get your way without pulling the trigger, that's the best way for most people of using the weapon. And in that sense, and that's why you have it, and that's why you build more of them. Uh, we've used that much more often than the public is aware of, and I give a number of instances. But in that context, President Trump, it's not its not just a question of whether he might use them. He is using our nuclear weapons right now when he raises the prospect of possibly a nuclear war or a non-nuclear attack that would escalate to nuclear war with North Korea. And he's looking ahead, actually, to changes in the relation in the treaty with Iran, which uh, could lead to a war, as seemed possible under George W. Bush and Cheney. So he's using the weapon. And for that matter, Kim Jong-un is using his weapons by threatening uh, what the retaliation would be for any attack. That's why he has them. And in fact, I would say that's why he's not going to give up the weapons that he does have. The idea that we won't even negotiate until he agrees beforehand that he will give there will be denuclearization. He will give up the 10 to 20 weapons that the Federation of American Scientists estimates that he does have now. Some people feel he has enough material for as many as 60, but um, the FAS says 10 to 20. He's not going to give those up. He thinks he would be crazy to do that, and that's not the way he is crazy. Uh, in fact, the deterrence, he feels, in other words, the use he's getting out of those weapons is uh, indispensable. And at the same time, he's trying to acquire a threat, 
not just of a boat, but of an instant retaliation with ICBMs. And that very effort does expose him in some ways to greater risk, even though he has a deterrent capability of 10 to 20 fission weapons, atomic weapons of the kind that destroyed Nagasaki. That would seem to deter most people, but it is disturbing and dismaying to realize that it doesn't necessarily deter President Trump. He's still talking in those terms and seems to be encouraged to do that by General McMaster and um, his national security assistant talks in these in these same terms. So I'm saying on the one hand, we've had what President Nixon called a madman theory in 1969. We've had that right along. Uh, to threaten nuclear weapons has always been to threaten a mad action. Now, is it mad to threaten? Well, considering that what we're doing is preparing to carry out those threats, readying ourselves, deploying the weapons, and and alerting them, and creating a possibility that there's a real risk that those threats will be carried out, that is mad, I would say. That's an unjustifiable and unconscionable risk to be taking. And that's been true of every president. Uh, What Trump has done is bring it to people's attention by uh, appearing to be even madder than most and uh, capable of carrying out these threats more than most. That that's in public mind is in itself good. And we can thank Trump for that if he doesn't take us to war. If he does, it will be a very high price to have paid for raising the issue. And one, uh, you know, one other section I want to look at before we wrap up the interview is this part where um, you go into detail about the several scientists who were involved and working on the development of atomic or nuclear weapons and their reservations. And you ask if any of the officials involved in the development of these weapons ever resigned or asked any questions. And you reveal that uh, your father, in fact, had an opportunity to help build the H-bomb, but he resigned. Uh, would you talk about um, you know, what your father decided to walk away from? Well, my father was not a scientist. He was a structural engineer, but and he uh, worked on factories for building warplanes during the war, Second World War, after which he actually was chief structural engineer on expanding the plants at Hanford, Washington, that were building materials for the uh, for buildup of A-bombs. But he was asked to work on the plants that would give materials for an H-bomb. And as he said to his deputy when he decided not to do that, he said, they're building, they have A-bombs, now they're building H-bombs which he knew, as he told me, would be a thousand times more powerful than the A-bombs that triggered it. He said, they'll go right through the alphabet till they have Z-bombs, he said. Well, we did get N-bombs, neutron bombs. They haven't quite gone through the alphabet, but uh, the new nuclear posture review talks about a new set of weapons that would be lower yield, easier to use, and would, just as the A-bomb, the Nagasaki-type bomb, is actually the trigger or the detonating cap uh, for an H-bomb, 
these lower yield weapons would, I think, be the detonators for nuclear war. And the thought that that war would remain nuclear, I'm sorry, would remain limited to low yield weapons in conflict with a nuclear power, whether it's Russia or, or China or North Korea or India and Pakistan. Um, any of those, the, the idea that the war would remain limited is a dangerous, dangerous pipe dream and uh, just an incentive to get the war started. It may be that uh, a war could be relatively limited if, the, if one of the sides had new nuclear weapons, uh, as in the case of many of our threats in the past, for example, against North Vietnam. Or even with North Korea, they'd be limited by the number of weapons the North Koreans actually have and would not cause the near extinction that a, uh, a big nuclear war would have. My fear is that if there was such a limited war, which may occur, if we don't stop it, we the people, and Congress uh, doesn't do the unlikely thing of actually preventing the uh, president from carrying out such threats, I think it could start an era of small nuclear wars between countries that don't have very many. Millions and millions of people would die in the course of this. And I think all, and the chance of dismantling the large doomsday machines would be negligible at that point. We'd be in a, not just a cold war, but a series of little hot, limited nuclear wars with great proliferation, deterrence and so forth. And the chance of actually dismantling these doomsday machines would have pretty much vanished. But uh, eventually, and conceivably not too long from now, a false alarm of the kind that has occurred in the past on numerous occasions, occurring between two countries that had doomsday machines on alert, like the US and, well, specifically the US and Russia, such a false alarm could end most human life on earth. That could have happened in the past. It's almost miraculous, I would say, that it hasn't, given the near close calls that we've had. Uh, and I think uh, the chance that that will happen in the future, unless we change course, is very, very high. And so the, um, no matter how unlikely it is that we will change course, that's what my life is devoted to, and it's what this book is. I hope will contribute to. Well, I think it's important, um, and and I suppose uh, just given what you said there, uh, we should mention uh, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and and the fact that in your book you do go into great detail about what you knew, and then what you later learned through your research, and how close we were to those weapons actually being set off. I guess the concern is that. Many, many people who live in the United States have no awareness at all at how close uh, the world has ever come to destruction. Yes, I was saying to my wife, Patricia, just the other day that if I knew only what the public knew, if I knew no more than what the public knows about the past close calls and the preparations we've made and the instability of the situation, I wouldn't be worried either. And most of them aren't. Uh, I understand that it's a state of ignorance, or you could say a state of denial by a lot of people because they aren't trying very hard to find out. Uh, that's what 
I would I would hope to break through the Cuban Missile Crisis itself. I lived through as a on as a consultant on high staff committees on that, and really the dangers of it only became evident years later as we began to get more information, and only in recent decades when we got information about the Russian side. And in that case, we were extremely close uh, to a nuclear war, and nobody knew at the time that that war would have led to near extinction by nuclear winter because the concept wasn't uh, even available at that point. So, but we did know that it would be a war that um, uh, would kill probably up to a billion people out of the three billion living then, even without knowing about the effects of smoke and nuclear winter. And I believe that both leaders, uh, John F. Kennedy and Premier Khrushchev in the Soviet Union, were determined not to allow an armed conflict to get started, knowing the risk of escalation. Yet, despite their wishes, as I describe in the book, we came extremely close by the maneuvers and the decisions at lower levels to uh, not only uh, starting with a nuclear, a non-nuclear conflict, but actually starting very early with nuclear weapons that we didn't even know were there. We didn't know were on the Soviet submarines. We didn't know there were tactical nuclear weapons in Cuba because Khrushchev, for inscrutable reasons, I, I really can't imagine now, chose not to tell us and thus not to deter us from planned actions. So the same could happen, I think, with North Korea. There could be enormous surprises, including things that uh, in retrospect, people would say, well, they should have told us that. Uh, biological warfare, chemical warfare that they had made ready, it's quite possible. Uh, ways of inflicting casualties in the US and uh, it would only be imitating the past if they, if Kim Jong-un had failed to tell us these provisions he had made for uh, retaliation or for preemption, out of which we would see more violence than the world has ever seen in a day or a week. One last quick thing before I let you hang up and go. Uh, most people who are listening to this interview um, may have also taken interest in the fact that part of your story um, was featured in the Post recently, at least the part of your Pentagon Papers story. And I, I just wondered, um, you know, what it's been like for you in the last month to see so many people uh, introduce more mainstream, going beyond just, you know, the most dangerous man in America documentary, um, and, and what you think, given Donald Trump being our president, it means to have more people uh, considering uh, what uh, someone could do if they had access to what you had and could reveal truth to people? I do feel that, that this is an especially urgent time for whistleblowing from China and specifically for the internal estimates of the likely casualties, deaths, and destruction from a war with North Korea. I would I'm sure there are official estimates like that that would be very, very deterrent, very appalling to our public. And I think that it would be worth a person's career, life in prison, even freedom, 
to consider acting like Chelsea Manning or Ed Snowden to uh, reveal that information to the Congress and to the public. When I say the Congress, uh, this Republican Congress, as I say, is not likely to do very much with it. Uh, With the public, again, it's not easy to say they can press Congress. I would would hope it would activate them even more to replace this Congress, and not only with Democrats of the kind we've seen in the past who have not investigated it adequately, uh, whether it was a Republican president or a Democrat president, but with Democrats who are prepared to oppose resist this president, but in numbers, and Democrats who are far more concerned about this issue than we've seen in the past. I would love for the uh, 390 women who are considering running for Congress now uh, to be apprised of this issue and to realize that it is not just a men's issue, that it's very much a women's issue, a children's issue, a grand, it's an issue for our species. It's just possible that women running for this in large numbers will be more concerned about this aspect than we've seen from the men. There may be a a gender aspect to it. Certainly uh, competitions in whose button is larger, we've seen between Trump and uh, Kim, do not sound like a a representative women speaking. And uh, the kinds of women who get power in a very patriarchal society tend to be quite macho themselves. If we got a lot of women more elected and uh, working on this issue along with the others that are more traditionally seen as women's issues, I think we could see a real difference. All right, Dan. Thank you for talking. Um, I appreciate your time and uh, I wish you all the best, okay? Okay, thanks for the opportunity, Kevin. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.